privilege to be here with you today and to see Andy again. It's been a long time since he was on staff. Wayne and I have talked. Short guys keep in touch with each other, but it's been, it's been good. Uh, today I want to cover for you what I took six or seven messages at Grace to cover. Um, I was a little worried about that, but Wayne assured me that you're much smarter than my church. <laughs> and then he said something about a church reflecting its leadership. I'm not sure what he meant by that. But, but I wanted today cover with you a subject that I have studied and felt strongly about for a long, long time, and that's the issue of friendship. Uh, in many ways, the Christian life has been mystified for us. There are many aspects of, which, of, of it that we think of and we think, how does that work? And I don't know the spiritual technology, uh, terminology, and I, I don't know Greek and Hebrew, and, and I don't know all that stuff. And so, so much of the Christian life can seem so mysterious to us. And we wonder, is, is it something we even understand? Is it something we begin to understand? And it's interesting to me, when you study Scripture, one of the terms that is used that is incredibly significant, though not used a great deal, it's used very broadly to describe aspects of following God is the word friendship. Um, to the greatest leaders of the Old Testament, Abraham, the, the father of the nation of Israel, and Moses, the giver of the law. The word friend of God is used specifically in those two cases, no others, and yet they are two of the most significant people in all of Scripture. And Jesus uses the word significantly in the course of His ministry. I think it's an incredibly powerful term, and ironically, it's one that we all understand. Because all of us long for friendship, right? All of us have this incredible need for friendships. We were made to be relational beings. If, if you understand the Scriptures at all, you understand that God made us to have relationship with Him and with each other. Therefore, the two great commandments are love Him and love each other, right? We, we fundamentally need friendships. In fact, when we as a society decide we want to particularly punish someone, what do we do? We put them in a room by themselves, and we call it solitary confinement, because there is nothing that, that is as powerful as being removed from contact from other people, and all of us need friendships. When you study Scripture, the two words in the Old Testament and New Testament used for friend are both rooted in the verbs for love. The Old Testament word for love is ahav. And being from East Texas, that's how I remembered it. I have a friend. That, that, that idea that a friend is a participle, one who loves, a lover, ohave. It's, it's someone who loves. The word in the New Testament is one that you're familiar with, philos, from which we get Philadelphia, brotherly love. It is, it is a lover, a, a friend, a brother, a sister. So fundamentally, a friend is someone who loves, but the Scriptures unpack the idea in an incredibly significant way. Now, I typed these, um, uh, out, these outlines very last minute, and so there are mistakes in them, and I apologize. You can handle it, though, because you're really, really bright. Notice I used, I don't normally read much of A.A. A. Milne and Winnie the Pooh, um, guy named Winnie makes me a little nervous, but, but I want you to notice the quote there because I think it hits that longing that we have. Piglet sidled up to Pooh from behind. Pooh, he whispered. Yes, Piglet. Nothing, said Piglet, taking Piglet Pooh's paw. I just wanted to be sure of you. Doesn't that, isn't it interesting that a silly little quote 
about two talking animals would be as powerful and it's because it touches a fundamental need that all of us have. When you look at Scripture, the thing that it emphasizes more than anything else is a friend is someone who sticks with you. I remember being younger, you know, when you're in, in high school and then college, you have dozens of friends. You have huge numbers of friends. Everyone's your friend. And, and I remember older men saying, if you have three or five friends in the course of your life, you're really fortunate. And I always thought, what a downer. You must really not be very nice that you don't have more friends because I've got lots of friends. And look at me, I'm not even nice and I have a lot of friends. But see, over life, you come to realize that the definition of a friend is someone who sticks with you. And in time, you realize how few do. Notice what the proverb says. Uh, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. The friend is that person who sticks with you no matter what. When you're successful and when you're not. When you're powerful, when you're not. When you're young and handsome, when you're not so much young and still handsome in a kind of balding, gray-headed sort of way. <laughs> the reality is that, uh, according to Scripture, is the thing that we most long for in a friend is that person that will hold to us no matter what happens. My father-in-law was a deal guy. He was raised in an orphanage. If you've ever read the book, Twelve Mighty Orphans, about the Masonic home in Fort Worth, he was one of the twelve orphans. And as a result of that, he played football for Rusty Russell, who went on to coach Doak Walker at SMU. And they're a famous high school football team. And my father-in-law always said, the, the orphanage taught me aggression. They never taught me any self-restraint. So he made and lost two fortunes. He'd make a lot of money, and he'd lose it all. He'd make a lot of money, and he'd lose it all. He was a trip to be around. But the hardest part of bankruptcy was not losing the money. Not losing the big house in North Dallas and the, the other house in Colorado Mountains. You know what the hardest part of bankruptcy was? Realizing how few friends he had. Because when he was big and successful and written up in the morning news and driving big cars, he had lots of friends. But they weren't. Because a, a friend loves at all times. At all times. That's why we can be sure of them. What do friends do for us? Friends make us better. Friends make us real friends, biblical friends, not only just stick with us. By virtue of their love, by virtue of their loyalty, by virtue of their character, they make us better. I've quoted a number of verses or placed them in there from Proverbs 27. There's kind of the, the uh, mother load of friendship Proverbs is in chapter 27. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an, empty, uh, an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. And the one best known, 2717, iron sharpens iron. Or as we say in East Texas, iron sharpens iron. <laughs> and one man sharpens another. Real friends make us better. Real friends, by their character and their loyalty, they, they demonstrate a love which causes us to listen to them in a way that we don't. Chuck Swindoll famously said years ago in one of his books, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. 
And when you can be confident of their love, then the reality is they have an impact to make you better. Now, I had two teenage girls at once in our household. I was an only child. Our household was sane growing up. And then we have a household with two teenage girls, which to me seemed insanity much of the time. Most of the time, I had no idea what was going on. I would look at my sweet wife and say, can you tell me what's going on? She would say, it's fine, just be quiet. Uh, <laughs> one of our daughters came home from the University of Texas and cried all weekend. At one point, I got out my checkbook and started to write a check. If I give you money, will you stop crying? And my wife looked at me and said, it's okay, she needs to cry. Men, have you ever in your life said to your friend, hey, I just need to cry? That's an experience I had no comprehension of. I mean, being around adolescent girls was just a new experience for me. I, there was a lot I didn't understand. I, I, I just didn't get it. I still don't. But God is good. My daughters have daughters, and it's fun to watch. Um... And I don't even know why I told you that story. Hebrews 10, 24. <laughs> Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of coming near. Fundamentally, friends make us better. They make us better. They make us better. Verse 6 of Proverbs 27 has an element that I had never noticed before until I did this series. Friendships require trust. I've already read it to you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know what that implies? You have to trust them when they wound you. You have to trust them when they wound you. Um, why is that hard? Well, it's hard because life teaches us not to trust. Mike Morley wrote a book called Man in the Mirror back in the 70s or 80s. He's got a new book, and he's, he's head of a men's ministry, really powerful thing. And I read the book way back when it first came out, and, and there was one phrase in it I've never forgotten. He said, men have problems trusting because all of their life teaches them not to trust. Now, as I already told you, I don't understand being a woman, but i got a little bit to understand what it is to be a man. And the reality is, in our experience, much of what we learn is that you just can't trust other people, right? You thought you had all those friends, and then life moves on, and they're not the same. You're in work situations. What do you learn? You learned you can't trust yourself to everyone because people will let you down. Some of you grew up in homes where there was not a fundamental trust. There was a brokenness in your home, and you will struggle with trust all your life because God's intention is that a mom and dad provide an environment where we learn what it is to trust and be trusted. Inability to trust is a, is a cancer on the soul, but it's common in our society. But many of us are alone but because we struggle with entrusting ourselves to others. They indicate the slightest bit of, of negativity and we become fearful because we've been hurt. We know what it is to be damaged. They, they show a little bit of criticism and we run because we know what it is to be attacked. 
Or we call one day and they don't answer the phone and we immediately assume they no longer like us when actually it's something insignificant. But that, that lack of trust is an incredibly significant thing in the context of building relationships. A friend loves at all times, but if we're going to have friends, we have to learn to trust. If we're going to have friends, we have to learn to trust. Now I want to give two quick applications. Like I said, this was six or seven messages to my church, but I just real quickly, two things for you to think about. Where do we need friends? Where do friendships particularly intersect our lives? Let me give you two examples according to Scripture. 3 John, verse 15. I think in the notes I wrote 14. 3 John, verse 15. I know all of you were reading 3 John just this morning in your personal devotions. Um, 3 John, verse 15. The Apostle John writes to the church, Peace be to you, and the friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. You know what's going on there? He's saying, My church your friends, writes to you because they assume you're friend, their friends. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting that the Quakers call themselves a society of friends. But the reality is that as early as John's writing the third epistle, one of the expectations was the body of Christ would be a place where we could have friendship, intimate relationships. Now, I grew up in a small little Presbyterian church in East Texas. Originally it was Moore Memorial Presbyterian Church, now it's Fifth Street Presbyterian Church. And if we had 200 on a Sunday, it was pretty good. And I love the advantages of bigger churches. We are like you, we're what's called a middle-sized church, but back then it was considered a huge church, but of course now there are churches bigger than cities. And the megachurch has had a huge impact in America today, and there is much, much, much that I admire about it. Hear me. I am not being critical of it. But the one problem that I can think of immediately with the megachurch is even true in this size church, and that is that you can slip in and slip out and never have a relationship with anybody. You can come hear the music, grade the sermon, get a brief nap before the game starts, and be like Teflon on a personal level. Little church I grew up in, you couldn't do that. Everybody knew you. All the, I was fathered by dozens of men who joined my father in, you know, trying to corral me. But God's intention is that the church be a community where people are friends. Where people know you. Where you believe you're loved. One of the most powerful things about the body of Christ is that it can be a place where people from broken homes experience what it is to have fathers. It can be a place where people who have lived lonely lives can experience what it is to be loved. God's intention for the church is that it is the extended family of the believer, and as such, it is a place where we have the kinds of relationships that God will let us experience in the fullness in heaven with Him. And way too many of us, because of our fear of trusting, the hurts we've had, or the busyness of our lives, neglect that aspect of the church. Can I challenge you today to start being a friend in church? Church is one application. 
A second application of friendship is in marriage. Now, I grew up in the church, like I said, and I'll, I, have, I still have the little King James Bible that I'm old enough, we memorized in the King James, I had the King James, I knew King James, I could understand King James then. Now I'll go back and read and it confuses me. I don't know what happened to my brain. But, but I, I remember reading the King James and the shock when I found the Song of Solomon. My first thought was, does my mother know this, chap this book is in the Bible? <laughs> I mean, there are things in there that, you know, you read them out loud in some churches and they're going to hang you. I mean, it's a pretty stout book. He's pretty, he, he you, know, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? And so it was really shocking to me that when I read the Song of Solomon, not too many times, but a few, in chapter 5, verse 16, it says, His mouth is most sweet. And he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. And this is my friend. This is my friend. We have so destroyed the word love that we have lost the concept of friendship and marriage. In fact, I would argue if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, and I'm about to do it right now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2 and read the founding of marriage and the family, let me read to you verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Okay. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. By the way, the word helper there is most often used of God's assistant in our lives. So it is in no way diminishing the role of the wife. If anything, she's superior. But that's another subject for another day. And I won't say it at third service because my wife's going to be here. But the reality is, <laughs> she already knows it, sadly. Um, Again, verse 20, man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds in the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. What need does marriage answer? Companionship. Companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. This is so significant on a number of levels. First of all, what if you're married and God never gives you a child? Is your marriage useful? Many taught throughout the centuries that the point of the marriage is procreation. And certainly that is an aspect of what God gave marriage for, but it is not the primary aspect of marriage. If all you're here for is to make babies, what happens when they move out? And I promise you, they will. When we dropped our first daughter off at the University of Texas, yes, we went to University of Texas. Be gentle with me, okay? Um, I, we drive her down there, her mother and I, her younger sister, and I leave her at a dorm room where there are 25,000 college-age males. <laughs> and I once was one. And so as I'm driving off, I frankly cried the whole way home. I was a complete idiot. It was one of the worst days of my life. And we stopped at a Whataburger to get something to drink, and there was a man holding a basket with a baby in it. And I walked up to him and said, don't get attached to him, they'll leave you. And the problem is, if all your marriage is about is your kids, what happens when they leave? 
You know how many marriages end when your children leave? You know why? Because they ended long before that. Fundamentally, what we need most in our marriage is a friendship. The other stuff is great, but we long for a friendship. John Gottman, one of the foremost researchers on marriage, secular guy, I mean, absolutely brilliant. He claims that within five minutes of observing a married couple, he can predict with 90-something percent accuracy whether their marriage will stay together or not because of his research. He has a number of books. They all say the same thing, but that's the way you make more money. And um, (laughs) most of them are the seven principles or the ten things or the three things. In the seven principles of making marriage work, he has a sentence that sums it all up. Happy marriages are based on deep friendship. Happy marriages are based on deep friendship. If you're married and you're not friends, it's never too late. It's never too late. I tell men, how did you get her to marry you? Every man that's married is a salesman, right? (laughs) Because it defies all logic that a woman would entrust herself to a man, right? You know, I gave two daughters away in marriage. I was traumatized by it Um, because they're men. Um, And I'll say to a guy, you know, the marriage is broken. What what do I do? I said, how, what did you do when you dated her? I don't know. (laughs) You listened to her. And by the way, ladies, Men have a bad reputation for not listening. It's my experience from doing counseling with couples that women are just as bad at not listening. The difference is when you don't listen to a woman, she keeps talking. (laughs) When a man discovers she's not listening, he stops talking. True. It's true. In fact, more often than not, men who have affairs don't have affairs because of sexual attraction. They have affairs because they find someone who will finally listen. The reality is that what we long for in marriage and what makes marriages incredibly powerful is when you are married to your friend and they know you, they have your back. I've had a bizarre career. I've been in ministry, I've been in business, I've been in church ministry, I've been in academia. I've worked in a lot of different things. There was a period when a business I'd worked with had failed. Um, Literally, I called the corporate attorney and said, get my name off the books. He said, why? I said, trust me, get my name off the books. He called me a few months later and said, now I get it. I I resigned as the corporate attorney. If I'd stayed, I would have had tax liens pushed against my name. It was not pretty. Big business, really ugly. I've lived in all of those kinds of experiences, and and we had just bought our a house, and the house, the sale of our old house had fallen through. So I was making two house payments, and we had two elementary age co- kids. My wife wasn't working, and 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 it was an ugly, ugly, ugly time. And I remember lying in bed with my beautiful wife, and we looked at each other and said. If we have each other and we're in a cardboard box, we have more than other people. That's what we long for. So, friends stick with you, right? But friends need our trust. 
Church is a place of friendships, and marriage is the ultimate test of a friendship. Let me move on, because I have more to cover. So who is our ultimate friend? How do we come to understand what friendship really is? John chapter 15. If you have a Bible, it's a great one to turn to. John chapter 15. If you've read the Bible much, if, if, if you're a follower of Christ, you've probably heard John 15, Abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. One of the beautiful passages of the book of John, one of the most famous. But in verse 13, he says to, to the apostles at this last week of his life, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. You are my friends. The ultimate example of friendship is the second person of the, of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Lord. We come to understand friendship better than any other time when we look at the one who had everything, gave it all up for you and me. Jesus said, greater love has no one than I'm one who gets up his life for his friends. And you're my friends when you do what I've commanded you. Jesus is the example of friendship that, that not only encourages us, but makes all of this make sense. You know, there are all kinds of religions. I've studied different religions at, a, at different times in my life. I've read other religious texts. No religion claims that God Almighty lived among us, and died for the sins of the world. Christianity is absolutely unique in, first of all, having a God that is so much greater than we are, so transcendent that we cannot even understand Him, and yet who became so intimate with us that He gave His life for us. Greater love has no one than this, than one who gives His life for his friends. He continues to go on and say, and you are my friends. No longer will I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And isn't it interesting that the foundation of the Christian faith is to trust Him? Did you catch that? The foundation of the Christian faith is to trust Him. You do not experience what the love of Christ means until you have been pl and placed your trust. We call it faith in who He is and what He's done. All Jesus says is trust me, trust me, look at what I've done for you, trust me. And if you don't know Christ, there's plenty about Christianity to turn you off. We're, we're a broken people, we're a mess. In fact, that's what our gospel says. We're so broken, we know that we need His forgiveness that only comes through Jesus' death on the cross. But the amazing thing is that Jesus doesn't ask you to sell everything. Jesus doesn't ask you to give up everything. Jesus primarily and first of all asks that you simply do one thing, that you trust Him. 
And it's not a blind trust. It's not a leap of faith, as Kierkegaard said. It is a knowing faith because of what He's done for us. He gave everything. All He asked for us is faith. Incredibly powerful. He is the great example of what it is to be a friend. And some of you have lost that intimacy with him. Some of you feel disconnected from him. Some, some of us get caught up in doing the right thing and we lose the relational aspect of walking with him. Can I encourage you today that he is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the very son of God, co-equal with the Father, uh, creative power of all the universe, and yet he is also your friend if you'll only trust him. So what does Scripture teach us? Uh, what else does Scripture teach us about friendship? As, as followers of Christ, what is it that we're supposed to know? And there are two facts here that I want you to notice. Um, James 4.4. 4. James, we believe, was written by the half-brother of Jesus, probably his oldest little brother, who would have been uh, a son of Joseph and Mary. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Isn't it interesting that all the good I've said about friendship, now, Jesus, uh, John, excuse me, James, they all start with J, that's as far as I go. <laughs> James calling roll in heaven, and they're all saying, why? Why? James um, makes the point that as good as friendship is, the one thing that's, that's fundamentally bad is having the wrong friends. Now, if, if you've had teenagers, what, what, what scares you to death about your kids? Well, a lot of things, but what in particular? I, by the way, we loved our, uh, we thought teenage years were an absolute hoot. It was great fun. Uh, oftentimes, adolescents are given a bad time and a bad name. I thought, I think they're the most interesting people in all of the earth, so... But one of the things as a father of adolescence that scares you is when you start watching to see who their friends are, right? You, you go to football games or uh, band contest, you go to their activities, and what do you catch yourself doing? You're trying to figure out who their friends are. My wife is an unbelievable listener. What she would do is she would always volunteer to drive them, and they would all sit in the back seat, because, of course, you can't sit in the front seat with your parent. And... and after a while, they forget you exist, and they would just start talking, and she would get very quiet and listen, and she would learn who their friends were by listening. Um, because nothing shapes who we are more than our friends, right? So what does Jesus say? Through James, don't be friends of the world. I know Wayne has taught you the world, word world there is cosmos. It reflects the whole system that is the world, the brokenness, all that is evil and broken in the world in which we live. That's what he means. He says, don't be friends with that. Ironically, in Jesus' time, those who represented the world more than anyone else were the religious leaders. When you read the Gospels, the only people that Jesus picks on the most and consistently are the Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes. It was the religious leaders who represented the world more than anyone else. So don't be fooled. The world there is not occupational. It's a standard of the heart. Don't be friends of the world. 
Now, I grew up in a very grace-oriented Presbyterian church. The, the pastor who or, uh, baptized me as an infant was one of the founding pastors that pa- uh, started Dallas Seminary. He was one of the gra- most gracious human beings I've ever known. I would go out of the church when I was, you know, five, and he would give me a peppermint every Sunday, and I still remember it to this day. Very grace-oriented. And my parents, though, sent me to a camp because it was only $6 a week, and that was what we could afford that was fundamentalist. And who put the word fun in fundamentalist? Because I discovered that they weren't fun at all. They were full of legalities and rules, who you could talk to, and there was this impression that you needed to to stay away from anyone that wasn't there because they're all bad. And way too often we Christians speak of the people in the world as if we're condemning or as if we think we're better than they, right? But our gospel tells us that's not true. Our gospel says we're all broken and needy, right? And that's the second point I want you to see about Jesus and the word friendship. Luke 7, 31, To what then should I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not wait. For John the Baptist came, eating no bread and drinking, no wine, and you say, He has a demon. And the Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, so you say, Look at him, he's a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all our children. The most common condemnation of Jesus in the gospel is he was friends to the wrong people. Jesus was a friend to Republicans and sinners. Come on, it's funny. Even an election system. I, I, for years we had a state senator who was the founder of the Republican Party in Dallas, and I always said that, and he always laughed louder than anybody. Um, <laughs> Jesus was a friend of broken people. And sometimes we're so fearful of becoming friends of the world that we're not friends to the very people we're sent to. We're separated from them. We act like we're too righteous. Let me summarize this with a passage with which you're very familiar because I'm running out of time. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, 17, something like that, in the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I read that passage for decades, assuming that being salt and light more than anything else meant being righteous. Being good. But that isn't what it's saying. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Our obedience is a function of our love for him. Holiness is not directed at the world around us. It's directed at a holy God. How are we salt and light in the world in which we live? We love them. Now, if we're hypocritical when the... When the uh, you know, obviously the world takes note when we act in such a way that is, shows no credibility in everything else. 
when you know preachers steal from the church and have affairs and all of the things, the body of Christ is hurt. I'm not saying that holiness doesn't matter. Hear me. But what I am saying is the most significant thing of what it is to be salt and light is to demonstrate the very character of God. And John in his gospel said, God is love. When the disciples asked Jesus, what does it mean to love God? To, what are the great commands? He said, love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Men and women, boys and girls, the most significant way in which we can have an impact in the world in which we live is not to be good. They don't care if we're good or not. It's our values. What they're looking for us to do it's to demonstrate the love of God. Because that will show them whether it's real. They don't want sermons, they want service. They don't want criticism, they want caring. They are desperate to find out if Jesus really does love the way the Bible tells them so. And they will only find out when we demonstrate that love by being a friend of them. I submit to you that of all the great theological terms and all the big ideas in Scripture, one of the most powerful concepts that God has given us is to be a friend. To experience the friendship that we have with God because He gave His only Son. And then to separate ourselves from a system that's broken and destroys our neighbor and tears apart our families and does horrible things to our community and to show the love of Christ by being a friend. So which is it for you today? What area of friendship do you need to work in? Have you stopped being a friend of your spouse? Are they just a utility that you use to get the meals cooked or the paycheck brought in? Go back to how you wooed them. Be a friend. Are you experiencing friendship in the church? Are you fearful and unwilling to trust because you've been hurt by Christians and you know how broken they are and you're afraid if they see who you really are, they won't like you? Trust them. Be a friend. And in the world in which we live, when you read history, what impressed the Roman people and the spread of Christianity throughout the world was not that we were smart, although the Apostle Paul was brilliant. It was not that we were righteous, because they really didn't care. It was the love they showed to the broken and downtrodden. The body of Christ demonstrated the very character of God in the way they befriended broken people around them. And you know what's great about that? All of us know what it is to be a friend. All of us know what it is to be a friend. No matter how bad a life we've lived, no matter how broken we are, no matter how ignorant we are, all of us intuitively understand what it is to be a friend. That is something that we learned when we were in preschool. And it's one of the most powerful things we can do today. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we're sometimes afraid to love because we've been hurt. 
We're afraid to trust because we know ourselves. And when we look at you, we don't really trust that you love us as much as you say. Father, we pray that when we see the cross, we would not just see the suffering, but the love that it represents. And Father, we pray that we would demonstrate that very love in our church, in our home, and in the world around us. Thank you that you chose to make broken little creatures your friends. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.